0: Welcome to another on Film Podcast. I am Scott Morris and I'm joined today by the whole crew. First off, Craig Eastman. Hello there. And Drew Tavendale. Hello. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Hello there, dear boy. Delighted to meet you. Today we're going to be talking
1: about films. I knew films. you. <laughs>
0: Oh dear. Yep, so we have, we have no fixed agenda for this. We, it's simply <laughs> April and we want to talk about some films that we've seen recently and that. So that's what we're going to do. We're GK.
1: rebels like that. Mm. Mm. We are a dangerous, dangerous organisation. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Don't say we didn't warn you. We've got airships and everything, like every good dangerous organisation should. Our dirigible's are deadly. Dark dirigible, that's what they call me.
1: We even have our own hollowed out volcano there. Well...
2: That's so passe.
1: It's more more of a sort of unfinished pond in the back garden, but eh, it's once you get the kitchen somewhere. Yeah.
0: (laughs) How'd you go about hauling out a volcano anyway? Because they're normally full of lava and crap, so you'd you'd probably need to be like ladling it out, but (laughs) it. The, mm. the magma kind of solidifies. At you're doing it You'd go through so many ladles.
2: At the very least you'd need some decent stud partition Yeah, I mean, mm. it's a DIY nightmare dot and I'd go for dot and dab actually
1: You'd need a lot of, <laughs> I reckon you'd need a lot of wall ties as well So you definitely don't want anybody from Edinburgh Council associated mm. with it in any way <laughs>
2: And a good tiler's a must There you go, that's answered your question On the next episode
0: The inside of our hollow volcano is entirely ceramic
2: (laughs) Apart from the grout Imagine running out of spacers How do you estimate how many spacers you're going to need These are Listen, we ask the tough questions How do you (laughs) Questions other people are afraid to ask Show me the equation that tells you how many tile spacers you're going to need And how much grout to tile the inside of a volcano layer I suppose it depends very much on the volcano So
0: that's we? our writing competition for this month The <laughs> <Yeah.
2: laughs> best answer will win Something A copy of Volcano or, <laughs> or Dante's Peak It's a pyroclastic cloud So boys, what shall we start with? I've got a pyroclastic cloud in my pocket So pyroclastic cloud <laughs> into <behind laughs> his pocket then What's the script of that? I don't know No, let's talk about a film okay. Oh, okay So
1: mundane Mm-hmm, mm-hmm So predictable.
0: The first and least of the films that we'll be talking about, I am fairly certain, is The Fifth Wave, which was an adaptation of the young adult sci-fi novel of the same name, which sees a 16-year-old girl, Cassie Sullivan, played by Chloe Grace Moritz into a role where she must save her younger brother and along the way the entire world somehow from an alien invasion as well as a shoehorned in love triangle in a film that's shamelessly mixing and matching from The Hunger Games and Twilight, mm. but with space aliens. And mm. the, bodies,
1: the invasion of the body snatchers is in there too.
0: Yeah, well space aliens are, are indistinguishable from humans which I'm sure was intended to keep us guessing about who can be trusted but comes across as a way to save on the effects budget. Yes, as <laughs> a way to keep the budget below 38 million dollars. <laughs> yes. Yes. This has been released to widespread Booze and hisses so I don't think we need to labour the point other than to briefly add to the chorus uh, the effects work that does appear in this film is third rate the acting is phoned in particularly from a bored looking Lieb Schreiber and the plot can only politely be described as ludicrous with what has to be the worst alien invasion plan in film since Signs and it's very much not good on any level <laughs> I don't you
1: say that this, the effects work is yeah. good Scott you weren't completely overblown or blown away rather by the um, heads up display of the green alien Skull. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, that's
2: it. I don't think it's fair to say that the effects works third rate. It's half. It's halfway decent for most of the movie. You know, as, as with most other aspects of the film, some really clunky grinding stuff there. But I think the quality of the effects works is, is the was the least of my problems with
1: this. And some of the like, the effect of the flooding, I suppose, wasn't mm. too bad. Yeah, yeah. There's some
2: of the stuff at the start. It feels like they front loaded the decent stuff at the start. Perhaps the most annoying thing about this isn't, and this is as much as I'm going to say in the film's defense, is that I feel like there was at least some promise in the first 20 minutes in terms of the setup. The first 20 minutes, first half an hour or so, at least hint that there might have been a decent film and then things just take a dog leg into the rough and the ludicrous nature of this alien invasion plan as it plays out um, <laughs> somewhat, somewhat belies the studio's complete lack of intention to deliver anything resembling a, a satisfactory film would have done. The problem with this, and you're talking about it cribbin from uh, the likes of The Hunger Games and Twilight, I suppose the Twilight movies are probably the most directly responsible thing for, for this young adult fiction tsunami, which has been sweeping across cinema for the last few years. And I, I've seen all of those films and fine. They, I think they served the market. They were fine. There was nothing outstanding about them, but at least some sort of effort had been made. Whereas yeah. I think by the point that we've reached the fifth wave now, and the Hunger Games films, I think, are probably pound for pound are probably the best in, the best in class. I haven't seen any of the, uh, is it Divergent? Series, mm-hmm. um, or any of the the other things like the Maze Runner and whatnot. But first Maze Runner's not a bad idea. The second was pretty right. terrible. Well, the impression I get from the Fifth Wave is that this is now this is the thin end of the wedge <laughs> of young adult <laughs> yeah. fiction. We have we have very much come to there. Probably there probably was a halfway decent film to be made here, but the biggest problem it has is that at this point, kind of the the stage curtains have fallen away completely, and the last hour and ten minutes or so of this film is just a completely obviously cynical attempt by the studio to set up a franchise rather than actually deliver a film that stands on its own two legs and that that is the biggest issue amongst numerous issues with this for me there's not even an attempt to hide it there is nothing like a satisfactory conclusion whereas at least a lot of other franchises have have rounded out their their first entry with something approaching the conclusion of a, of a story or, a, or at least a character arc. And there's enough material, like I say, in the first 20 minutes of this film, there's enough material. To, there's some interesting stuff there with the point at which our heroine, um, whose name is so forgettable I've completely forgotten. What was her name again? Cassie. Um, yes. Where she accidentally, well, she kills the guy in haste um, and then realises that she made a mistake. And that kind of teases that there might be some sort of interesting character development there, and then it just disappears down this vortex of the most generic young adult slush tropes that you can imagine. Yeah. It just becomes unbearable.
1: Yeah, there is the, there are hints of something interesting there, Craig, you're right. Like, for instance, similar to, say, something like Ender's Game, where there's a suggestion that Perhaps the young people with a, a more malleable mind, um, less set in their ways, etc., might be the best people to be soldiers or something. There's mm. like a hint at that. And then there's the thing of how are children affected by these horrific things they're going to do? Mm. No, it's like, oh, maybe we're going down that road. It's like, oh, no, they're just picking children because they're thick and gullible. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. So it's like, yeah, a couple of interesting points pop up, but then it just abandons them entirely because it wants to be yeah, the new Twilight or something like that. Mm.
0: Agreement yeah. from Twitter, at Zero Emerald, at a Mad Star saying that he's found fifth wave boring and severely lacking. Low budget, generic young adult adaptation, which is essentially in line
2: with our thoughts there. It's Ooh, just yes. not
0: very good. Could have been something halfway decent there, maybe. But yes, yeah. this is not that film. I mean, it's yeah.
2: budget it's budget's the best part of $40 million. It could have delivered something. It's not necessarily... I wouldn't it ain't chop change. <laughs> no, I wouldn't describe it as low budget. I mean, it you know that second half of that movie comes across as
1: being low budget but it's it's not yeah. I think its problem is it, as well as just like you're saying with it, the studio wanting to make it a franchise and then mm. particularly focusing more on that love triangle than anything else. I think oh, in the end that um, borderline creepy relationship between yeah, that, our, our heroine and this guy who is looks about ten years older than her. Yeah, mm. that's a little turgid tween and teen romance thing. But then also it wears its influences. A bit too much in its sleeve, not even so much influence. It's more just what it's straight out stolen. You know, it's obviously mm. the Independence Day like spaceship mm. evasions of the body snatchers, lines, uh, storylines, and things. And then it's just, I don't know, it's so generic. It's super disappointing because the great thing, the potential of
2: the... I keep saying young adult. I know it's annoying. I get annoyed by people saying YA all the time, but, you know, what else do you call it? The great promise of the young adult fiction sort of adaptations is that most of these movies, or at least it seems the greater proportion of them, are being led by strong female characters. And I think that's to be applauded because, you know, that age bracket, in in particular in the cinema, has has always been marketed towards teen boys. And I think, obviously, the Twilight movies... uh, if, if nothing else Showed that There was a massive Massive market there And the studios To their credit Seem to have taken that on board But it's super disappointing That this This soon in the cycle We've already reached the point Where they've just stopped Making an effort Or you know A studio is willing To put so little effort Into something like this um, And it It really does the whole thing A disservice Because there's some Good material out there I mean there's some there's some absolute trash that's already been adapted. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't seen the, uh, I haven't seen the movie of I Am Number Four, but I made the mistake of reading the book in an airport one time, and it's one of the most heinously <laughs> written sub Dan Brown standards. Um, oh, I've Pieces seen of film. crap. You'll, the film's you'll ever pretty poor. Yeah, I understand most people's opinion that the film's pretty poor. So I've never felt compelled to watch the film because the the book was such a, a piece of rubbish. Um, but you know, there is good material out there, and. If they're willing to make the effort and invest in it, they're a good films to me. But please don't take such a step forwards in terms of these strong female lead roles, and then and then just take a massive, massive step backwards in terms of you know the the commitment that you're willing to put into delivering an actually halfway decent finished product. It's ridiculous. They may as well just flushed thirty eight million dollars down the toilet. There you go. That's why I thought about that. Not that I care one way or another, right? <laughs> You've <all> got <laughs> strong opinions on it, but <laughs> I want my two hours back. <laughs> and Chloe Grace Moretz is is a charismatic enough actress and and she's more than capable of carrying something like this. So, but I don't know what's happening with her career lately. There's, you know, she needs to get a new agent, I think, because some of the uh some of the stuff she's been cast in, yeah, disappointing i hope she i hope she gets another really decent high profile lead role soon
1: now scott mentioned earlier we did not really have much of a theme tonight but we have inadvertently stumbled on an episode where more than half of our films are, are films with a female lead which is kind of unusual Unfortunately, it's not all good news on that front. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> most of them are also poor. Yes. Well, our
0: podcast passes the Bechtel test just. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Despite else. the hosts. Despite
1: yeah. the hosts. Yeah. Yes.
2: Okay, no. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hosting wise, it's an absolute sausage fest.
1: <laughs> but Jane got a gun, then. It's mm, another sausage about With, <laughs> with uh, a female lead. Uh, I don't remember having many sausages, though. Oh, um, disappointing. Bill. Hunt this one down my list of...
0: Well, there's a dude called Ham in it, so it's not far <laughs> away.
1: So this is another film with a troubled production history. Scottish director Lynn Ramsay was originally to have directed it and her departure resulted in claim and counterclaim in court. It also cycled through quite a few actors, including Michael Fassbender, Bradley Cooper and Jude Law, though we probably dodged a bullet there. After all that, Jane Got a Gun finally arrives here in cinemas. It's out April 22nd, so round about when this podcast gets released but if it's treated in the UK by distributors the same way as it was in the US it's going to more or less disappear without trace. Not as it turns out that that's going to be a particularly bad thing. <laughs> a pet project of Natalie Portman, who also produces as well as stars as the titular Jane. This is the tale of a woman whose husband returns to her one day on their middle of nowhere homestead full of holes and a message that very bad men Are following in his wake, and the very bad men will come to kill him because they are very bad men. So while her husband goes about quietly dying, Jane seeks out assistance. (laughs) Jane seeks out assistance from her former fiance, played by Joel Edgerton, who, in the great scheme of the American South and Midwest, seems to live next door conveniently, and she engages him to help protect her against these very bad men who are coming together. And while they bicker and learn about each other's past and prepare the house with a sort of grown-up version of Home Alone to ward off the very bad men who are coming, we get constant flashbacks of various points in the past and in no particular order either, giving the backstory of the couple and of Jane and of Jane's husband, Ham, and Jane's daughter and the very bad men and why they are very bad men. And to be honest, it's more or less impossible to care about any of it. Westerns are definitely not a genre for everyone and the common criticisms of slow-paced, terse dialogue and often gratuitous violence are most assuredly valid in the case of Jane Got a Gun. Though the most apt word that I can think of to describe this is tedious because for most of it nothing happens and none of the characters are in any way interesting and nobody does anything it's really good because after a wee argument we'll get a flashback of some people walking through some grass which is fascinating <laughs> and then we'll see some people breaking up some bottles and then we'll get the flashback of some people sitting talking and then maybe some grass it's fantastic now to give you some idea of the quality of Jane Gun*, the most remarkable thing about it is Ewan McGregor as the leader of the very <laughs> bad men and his no, wait for it, Craig, wait for it, And his non-atrocious Nay, even perfectly central American accent. Aye. So how he's done that, I have no idea. But that is the the only th- positive thing about the film.
2: I was going to say oh, that he's chosen he's chosen to pull it out of the bag in a film, which obviously you re- you rate so poorly.
1: <laughs> Not that the rest of it is bad. Bad is something for to aspire to. <laughs> it's just <laughs> because you can get emotionally invested in bad. <laughs> you know, it's just very, very. Very very, very dull. Steer clear.
2: Sorry, bad is something to aspire
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Very good. I shall steer clear of that then.
0: I think I was watching a different film. I thought it was pretty solid. Not, I can't <laughs> I can't claim that it's the you know the best film you're going to see this year, but I thought it was perfectly fine. You're right in as much as the the very bad men are very wildly underwritten, they could do with a lot more depth than that. But to be honest I thought the characters were fine, though the the relationship between them was kind of fleshed out quite well by the flashbacks. I thought that actually worked in building some tension and character development terms. actually worked better than a lot of other westerns I've seen. I mean, the greatest surprise, of course, is that anything came out of this film at all. Mm. Uh, I, I remember when I was doing the, the abortive kind of news roundups for the one liner.com and every week this had a different cast member in it yeah it was just a revolving door and the, the way they managed to get anything out at all should be applauded um they've i thought they actually salvaged it pretty well uh i have there's nothing at all spectacular in it it's it's hard to mount much of a defense in its favor on that basis but i thought it was perfectly fine and if you have a, a taste for westerns this is actually pretty decent uh, i can't really see what there is to hate in it. I mean, sure, it is slow paced, but find me a Western that's not. There's nothing too much in there that I found objectionable, so I thought it was perfectly fine. So, there. There you go. Dissension in the ranks. Absolutely. I that's would I w- I would, give it probably about a three out of five, so that's a mildish recommendation. And I would of. give
1: it a two out of five, <laughs> it's a mildish dis recommendation, and also what possibly a <laughs> nearly there's only one. One some... <laughs>
0: way
2: to decide this, boys. <laughs>
0: Fight! Well, would be two and a half would be the way to decide it. I don't know how it really ties up with saying Somewhat that bad simplistic. is something to aspire to and then giving it two out of five. That's <laughs> what it, your, your rating scheme is mental. What, what yeah. are you on? <laughs> you didn't mean two out of ten or something, did you? That would make more sense. No,
1: I mean, um, <laughs> bad you... is something to aspire to. Not in that bad, it's less than bad. It's more that it's just, it's nothing. Uh, whereas if it were bad, you could at least enjoy it in a sort of. Um, Hating and the, not enjoying I'm, it way. I, I, yes I'm yeah. hating this
0: you, way. you know you're supposed to enjoy things that are good right <laughs> <laughs> this might be where you've been going wrong in life yeah. <laughs> that's going to explain much yeah.
2: oh dear <laughs> oh dear drew and his cinematic self-harm <laughs> ploughing on <laughs> Moving on but
0: staying still in the wild wild west. In Bone Tomahawk trouble starts a brewing when murderous brigands stumble across an old burial ground and desecrating it along the way. But after poor old Sig Haig gets his comeuppance for such a- an act a fleeing David Arquette accidentally leads warriors from a tribe of what is soon revealed to be violent savage troglodyte cannibals to a quiet little <laughs> frontier town. And I should add at this point this is a much better film than you'd be led to expect by terms such as savage troglodyte cannibals <laughs> or David Arquette genre
2: (laughs) tropes such as that.
0: (laughs) The tribe, who, for <laughs> lack of an official name, I shall call the Trogs, abducted <laughs> Arquette, a, a deputy sheriff, and uh, Lily Simmons' Samantha, who had been tending to the gunshot wound that Seraph Hunt, played by Kurt Russell, had bestowed upon David Arquette, presumably for his performance in Ready to Rumble. This understandably leads to the sheriff rounding up a posse to go after them, consisting of himself, elderly backup deputy, chicory played by Richard Jenkins, A cynical, womanising, injun-hating brooder, played by Matthew Fox, and Samantha's husband, Arthur, played by Patrick Wilson.
2: It's literally worst posse ever. (laughs) (laughs) A guy with a broken leg, an old dude, and a a rich playboy, (laughs) who when he puts his money where his mouth is, doesn't come off the better for it. Oh dear.
0: Oh dear So against the advice of the locals who have heard tales of the viciousness, fearsomeness and the vicious ferocity of the trogs Claiming them to be wild things who make everything (laughs) groovy (laughs) The bands start tracking them to their home valley encountering the usual hazards of frontier life Wildlife, barely charted terrain, bandits, brigands and the like And Arthur's injury continually complicating matters uh, perhaps the most interesting struggle in this section, however, is internal rather than external as the varying degrees of animosity between the characters, flares and ebbs, backed by a clutch of good, believable character performances and it's about as good a stretch of modern Western have seen in the last few years. It's only when her intrepid band catch up with her prospective quarry that things get a little bit weird. In the struggle with the trogs, it really starts to earn its horror categorisation with some quite extreme dismemberments and the like <laughs> and... Much, much worse happening, actually, as Mm. it takes a rather more Eli Rothian tone. Mm -hmm. Although, again, nowhere near as bad as the words Eli Roth would have you believe. (laughs) It is, however, a real stylistic quiplash moment. And while it does provide the shock value it was aiming for, it nonetheless didn't sit quite right with me and it marked a very sudden suspension of my suspension of disbelief. Mm. And even knowing that that was coming, the mood shift was something that just did not sit properly with the rest of the film. So essentially, Bone Tomahawk feels like An hour and a half of a really good western with the final half hour of The Hills of Eyes accidentally spliced into it. Uh And it's as weird in practice as it sounds in theory, so while horror western is a genre mashup I don't think I've seen before, and certainly distinctive and probably unique as far as I'm aware, it's not one that is an unqualified success. But it is certainly better than sci-fi western, as Cowboy Aliens and Wild Wild West would attest. Uh A wiki wiki wah, a wiki wah, wiki wiki.
2: I still don't know really what to um to make of Bone Tomahawk. I don't I don't necessarily agree with the notion that there's an hour and a half of Good Western here because in that hour and a half in which absolutely nothing happens, or for a great deal of which absolutely nothing happens, it put me very much in mind of open range. But the reason open range worked is because the climax when it arrived yeah. was um, fueled by really fantastic, visceral sort of fight choreography and worked in the context of the rest of the movie. And yeah. <laughs> it was spent, and, <laughs> you know, that preceding hour and a half was was spent actually developing characters who I to any degree whatsoever, cared about.
1: Yes, they were compassionate characters. no absolutely. Yes, it's just absolutely something massively sy- missing in Bone and Tomahawk. Symp-
2: very sympathetic <laughs> characters, even though one of them was uh, Ke- Kevin Costner. <laughs> and yeah, in bone and Tomahawk, that was so lucky. Like, and I didn't, I, I, I've, I've read much and I anticipated much um, from this movie. I'd read about sort of these um, nice little digressions that the, the character dialogue would take into uh, unnecessary but satisfying... Um, uh, quarters um and how much flavor it added to the film and like say it's got the the sort of the the dynamic between the group and on both those counts I kind of felt a little bit underwhelmed um I didn't really find any of the characters all that compelling but is it Matthew Fox mm-hmm. uh, yeah Matthew Fox's character was interesting up until the, a point later in the film which you realize actually he's not that interesting. <laughs> And his and his motivations are just—he's—he's just, he's, he's just a, a dick with a very basic motivation. The dialogue was nowhere near as uh, interesting or clever as I think it would have liked to have thought it was either. And I think the the like painfully obvious correlations that people make between this and Tarantino—I'm—I'm I'm fed up of people describing dialogue as Tarantino esque. I've read enough reviews of this movie where that that terminology has been leveled at it. And I think it's a, a ridiculous to state that it's often rambling does little to develop the characters. And I wasn't all that enamored to spend too much time in their company. And yeah, these, the movies punctuated briefly at certain, every sort of 20, 25 minutes by a random, a seemingly random act of brutal violence that usually involves someone's throat getting cut. And then, yeah, again, just takes a complete, it takes a complete swing for left field in the last sort of 15 minutes um and like you say the like the the brutality of that last act is um quite something to behold not necessarily that i've not witnessed anything that bad in film before but again in the context of the rest of the film it feels completely out of place and i'm not sure it was entirely justified but you know it is what it is, and I applaud everyone involved for at least trying to do something different. And like you say, this is markedly better, at least, than the this the, the sci-fi western mashup. I think this again, it's disappointing. There was promise there, and I thought I liked where this movie was going in the first half hour. Then I realized that I didn't, and by the end, I think I was just kind of more <laughs> baffled than anything. So I I think there was a yeah. there was a great deal of potential there. I would like to. See someone take the idea and perhaps approach it differently because on paper, open range meets the descent is quite an quite an intriguing prospect. But yeah, it didn't it didn't feel as fulfilling as I expected, and I don't know whether that a great deal of that is just down to the uh, the hype and the expectation uh, beforehand. But I've have I've seen worse movies this month.
1: Um, I'm much more towards Craig's end of this than yours Scott. That's okay. I suppose from the beginning I thought Sid Haig was quite entertaining at the start and it's a promising 1st five, ten minutes so that could be quite entertaining and certainly
2: it took me about 10 minutes to recognise David Arquette
1: yeah yeah, but I recognised him immediately but I thought no I must have recognised him wrong because nobody mm. casts David Arquette anything nowadays surely mm. But, mm. with uh, him and him at the start he doesn't have much to do I guess but Sid Haig is uh, his usual over the top but quite entertaining self Mm. and that takes probably the best thing in it to be honest probably yeah and then you get Kurt Russell who is just generally quite charismatic regardless of what he's in so I'll warm to Kurt Russell quite easily in mm-hmm. this film and in much more so than City. it's a better job in this than Harrison Ford and Cowboys vs Aliens or anything like that and then you've got Richard Jenkins, who's actually probably my favourite character in this. So almost a comic relief, but fortunately not quite too much down to comedy, but there's a wee bit of humour from him as mm-hmm. his Doddry old guy and He's, he is actually quite sympathetic. Yeah. He's reasonably interesting. So they get this posse together and that's it's okay. and then you just Immediately when Matthew Fox turns up, I'd never liked him anyway. He's always got this, it was all through Lost as well. He's got this incredibly sour expression on his face all the time. And he's like, he's just an unpleasant person. Yes, they get this ridiculous posse together. And then nothing much happens for a while apart from the fact that it feels like you're in the 1930s again and the only thing missing in the casting is John Wayne because, of course, Mm. all of the good guys are white men and the Mexicans and the Native Americans are the villains. Mm. Which really rubbed me the wrong way. (laughs) Other than that, so yeah, you have them bad Mexicans and the bad Native Americans out there and you have this ridiculous posse and they go along and then... It's amazing you even made it out of town. It's such a stupid, stupid posse. Yeah, the broken leg is the real... (laughs) kicker isn't it Mm -hmm. excuse the pun but after about half an hour you realise it's not actually going anywhere and I don't care about any of the people they don't have much character I mean Richard Jenkins' character is funny and Kurt Russell does have that sort of charisma there that you can hold your attention a bit but beyond that nothing much is happening I'm getting annoyed by how stupid it is and the fact that they keep being attacked by non-white people and you know they're going to be bad in the film because they're not white and then it just turns into a completely different film at the end really didn't do much for me in this film at all Hmm. Yeah. I
2: would have liked to have seen the horror element leveraged more effectively throughout the first hour and a half, rather than just sort of backloading it all. Um yeah, although it just, it's hint- although it's hinted at, there's not an atmosphere of there's not a real suggestion. It, it's just you know the troglodyte attacks when they happen sporadically. It sort of could could just as easily be the work of you know bandits or um, you know an Indian. Uh, an Indian group, or or anything uh, like that. There's nothing to suggest it's particularly. Yeah, well, what was sort- annoying for me in this film
0: is it I did get the very clear impression that there's a first draft of this that just has uh, Indians as the bad guys. Mm. and none of this horror stuff because it doesn't really make any sense towards then given that you're talking about oh they're legendary warriors you'll never be able to beat them apart from if you're one guy with a broken leg who can barely (laughs) move you won't have any bother running through them like a hot knife through butter yeah which which is is bizarre given that the
2: yeah yeah, the certified gunslinger of the group (laughs) manages to take out one maybe maybe not even that like half
0: um, it seems like I may have inadvertently given you the, the impression that I actually liked this film. <laughs> um, I, I didn't. I thought for the mo- for the first half of that, first hour was, was pretty good, but mm. it just ruins everything at the end. And by the end of <laughs> it, i was just going, N- no, no, mm. thank you.
1: If you have the idea too of like, just that there was this sort of reclusive, inbred cannibal tribe, that kind of works actually. You don't have to have the over-the-top cleaving of bodies and things. Um, mm. And as you say too, just backloading, all of that stuff at the end of it would had some of that—that that threat mm. um, peppered throughout till like it's changed the atmosphere. but the atmosphere just changes completely at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a very different film. But although I wasn't even liking it all that much it, up to that point, it's
2: not not to say obviously that you can't do that, but it's a, a very um, fine line between that sort of thing working and just feeling completely disjointed. And for for me, it was the the latter. But. Do you know what I'd love to say that I'll come back and revisit this and, and give it give nah. it a second chance later but I know I'm not going <laughs> to no, there's no way I'm going to have time to revisit this movie unless I, you know, stumble across it one night when it's on showing on TV or something. We we'll, we'll see but yeah, underwhelmed.
1: Okay, so we come to another film with a female lead. Unfortunately, it's another one that's not very good and one that features an actor that I am frankly puzzled about how she has come to be considered quite such a good actor, because I've never rated her. I think, Craig, you like her even less. Um, <laughs> Potentially. So I speak of Sandra Bullock, who, while not awful, and much of the things she's kind of praised for has been at best adequate. So here she's in a role semi-fictionalised based on the story of a American political firm who recruits a former, what would you call her, spin doctor, I suppose? Campaign manager, really, but spin doctor, to help them and their client win the presidency of Bolivia in 2002. This is, unfortunately... Very, very, very dull. Now, it has multiple problems. First off, the man whom Sandra Bullock is tasked with getting elected is a rich white man, a billionaire of European heritage in a country whose population chiefly consists of dirt poor, disenfranchised Native Americans. Now, while, of course, it's wrong to assume that such a person should be a bad person, as it is to make any other judgment of a person based on skin, colour, and socioeconomic status. You're beginning with somebody who isn't exactly the most sympathetic type of character. It's mitigated of course by the fact it is based on a real character, but it really only compounds the film's other issues. To wit, our brand of Crisis bills itself as a comedy-drama, but it's sorely lacking in drama and comedy is completely absent. The satire route certainly is a valid one for this sort of thing, but that has also been given a body swerve. It's certainly deeply cynical about politics, which is something I suppose, but it's not much. The biggest problem here is Sandra Bullock because she is so incredibly flat throughout this film. She just lacks any sort of charisma personality at all and for someone who's playing a spin doctor, who's got to try and motivate people, uh, motivate a campaign staff, try and persuade her client that they should do things her way somebody having no charisma doesn't really seem to fit there and so neither her nor billy bob thornton who plays her nemesis who's working for a rival candidate here convince in any way at all as spin doctors and billy bob thornton in this film as usual plays billy bob thornton so there's a little entertainment to be had there from his usual sort of swagger and his drawing delivery but you've just got a bunch of people being really really unpleasant and doing unpleasant things in the name of getting people elected and people with no morals and no scruples at all. It's cynical so it's possibly accurate. It doesn't have anything useful to say and no interesting way of saying it. You have one character promoting fear that Bolivia is in crisis and then you have the other people promoting fear and that Bolivia needs to get rid of the rich white man and things and it's it feels kind of dirty afterwards because you watch this and you see these horrible things that these people do probably did in this case as I say based on the real story but it doesn't have anything useful to say and it does sort of suggest that Bolivia is really really backwards and I suspect it's not quite the case like, as is put in this film it just kind of feels insulting all around yeah it's almost pantomime level villainy going on at some points no well, um, there isn't and it's yeah. uh, Oh, really? Uh, yes, okay. uh, sorry. <laughs> that was actually quite quick, and I just wasn't thinking about that at all. I am so it's, sorry. I'm, no, the, the, you know, I'm kind of disappointed in myself, <laughs> but that's all I could come up with. Never mind. Sandra Bullock just got, got no charisma in this. That's a big feeling for the role she's got. The enmity between her and Billy Ball Thornton is not in any way believable. And the film and just simply has nothing interesting to say. And, I mean, you could have something that goes down the satire a bit like, say, Wag the Dog, which does it much more successfully, or the obvious example Mm. is In the Loop. Yeah. um, When you're talking about spin doctors working in the background, and that is, makes lots of points, it's incredibly satirical and it's funny as hell. This manages to miss on all of those points. Here's a bunch of unpleasant people doing unpleasant things. Thanks. I could have just watched the news and saved myself a couple (laughs) of hours (laughs) or (laughs) so yes unfortunately not a good film and another one that just i'm not sure actually the problem is sandra bullock's entirely here the whole thing feels quite flat it's a bit of a missed opportunity because the whole concept of it could have been quite interesting although it's the fact it's americans working in bolivia it just makes me feel slightly uncomfortable about like the kind of making fun of this poorer country has that sort of feel about it on occasion but other than that yeah it's just it's a bit poor unfortunately Want to avoid
2: boo just a quick update on bone tomahawk we had some feedback from our good friend matt toller at m toller on twitter bone tomahawk russell wanted to get a little more mileage out of his hateful ape moustache does, <laughs> does a lot with an old plot ah yes matt that old that old western troglodyte cannibal <laughs> <laughs> Carnival plot gets another no, no genre trope. Lives to see another day. Uh, no, I know what you mean there, Matt. We we probably disagree, but I knew beforehand that uh, Matt really enjoyed Bone Tomahawk, so I know we're, we'll we'll disagree on that one. But opinion appreciated nonetheless. As I say enough people seem to have gotten enjoyment out of that film. But what shall we talk about next? So next up on the list is The Assassin from
0: a, a director whose name I will struggle to pronounce. I think it's a. So who? I was gonna say, yeah. let's
2: take a stab at it. I decided last night that <laughs> yeah. I would take a stab at it, and now, yeah, now I've lost the IMDb page. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, a
0: highly celebrated director whose works has been on my to-watch list for some time. Although mm. I think this might actually be the first one I've caught up with. It's being pushed as a redefinition of the wuxia genre, a la Ooh. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or House of the Flying Daggers, which I don't think is entirely the case. But no. anyway, I'm getting rather ahead of myself. Ni Yin Yang, played by Shu, is taken from her parents as a child and raised to be a peerless assassin. However, after suffering a sudden attack of morals and uh, she refuses to kill a target in front of his son, she's sent back to the province of her birth with orders to kill the man that she had been promised to in marriage as a kid and still seemingly harbours feelings for, this man who is also in charge of the largest military forces in 7th century China. Uh, the film is set in 7th century China it's not like in modern times or anything that would be unusual if you still had someone being in charge of the largest military force in 7th century China if it wasn't set there as <laughs> uh, a film it, it looks stunningly gorgeous um, mm-hmm. if This isn't the most Attractively shot Film of the year Then there's some Treat awaiting us But it would have to be Something truly extraordinary To a degree It does call back To the previously Mentioned films With strong Bold Vibrant use of colour And painterly framing uh, Often very sedately Held for some time And Hugh Somewhat anachronistically Using the academy ratio Which gives the film A very distinctive look Mm. Visually It's an absolute treat And I'm a sucker For this period The detail's incredible And the pacing While it's sedate Held my attention And the brief flurries Of action are satisfying And it's adroitly Rather less edifying, I had only the loosest grasp on what was going on and who most of the characters were (laughs) or their relation to each other. I'm glad (laughs) I'm not the
1: only one then. (laughs) That's all three (laughs) of us.
0: From the recaps that I read of the plot, it doesn't seem to be a particularly complex story and I think I'm normally savvy enough to follow plots of this nature so I don't know if it was just an off day for me but your reaction heartens me a bit but it just feels like the story is obfuscated somehow. I I was just baffled by it. I'm not quite sure how.
1: Obfuscated is the word that came to my mind as well, Scott, and possibly obtuse. It's, yes. um
0: <laughs> also, uh, it's perhaps more a criticism of coverage of the film rather than the film itself, but I'm not exceedingly clear as to why you would champion this as redefining work in the bushu genre unless oh. you're happy with redefining, meaning leaving most of the genre out entirely. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, but that's a perfectly valid way to focus on the characters and the acting performance and the detail of the period and yada yada, all the stuff that I really liked on it, but that makes it a drama with the occasional wushu element, not a wushu film. It'd be like redefining the Fast and the Furious franchise by removing cars from the next film and making it about dirgibles. And while I'm entirely on board with an airship-based outing, calling it Fast and the Furious would be perverse. Mm -hmm. The bloated and the ponderous. (laughs) Still, that said, for me at least The positives do outweigh the negatives quite a bit And I can recommend it just purely on the aesthetic principle alone If you're less of a dummy than we are You might even like the plot But I'm not quite sure you'll be able to penetrate it But yes, um, certainly distinctive I enjoyed watching it But I'm not entirely sure why I enjoyed it I'm not entirely sure what I was enjoying
1: (laughs) (laughs) I am very much of the opposite mind to you, Scott It seems I've seen lots of people talk about how beautiful this film looks And I think absolutely it does not Visually, this film, I did not like at all. I mean, there are a few undeniably beautiful shots, but for me, those were in spite of rather than due to the cinematography. You have striking landscapes that simply could not fail to be visually arresting no matter where you plonk the camera down within them. But most of the rest of the time, the scene composition is insipid. Mundane shots of trees in the middle of fields and scenes of sets containing the most beautiful rooms and glorious costumes presented with the most uninspired and lifeless camera work and what that does is stop the film feeling like a film at all but more like a series of still lifes joined together. No doubt that's an intentional choice but for me that's just one that fails wholly in making the assassin an enjoyable watch. I mean it's also and as you mentioned uh, it's a martial arts film that makes the bold move of largely eschewing martial arts so I think people need to really update their genre dictionary when they're describing this these issues coupled with the fact that the characters are incredibly thin and what little plot there is is willfully obfuscated and obtuse for most of the film as well as pacing so slow that the word tectonic even more so than glacial springs to mind means that for me there's almost nothing worthy of recommendation in The Assassin I would recommend avoiding it (laughs) This is
2: turning out to be one of our more interesting (laughs) podcasts because we're we're all over opinions here just now. I'm gonna to go straight ahead and say it. it's, it's interesting to hear you your guys. You struggled with the plot, even though you were paying attention. Because I had assumed that the reason I finished the movie and thought to myself, What was all that about? was I'd, I'd made up my mind that I knew why. And it's because I spent so much of my time with my eyes just sort of taking in detail and searching the frame that I wasn't paying attention to the subtitles on quite a lot of occasions. Uh, and I found myself hmm. completely bewildered within, I would say, the first 10 minutes, like 10 seconds is, <laughs> is probably. <laughs> closer to the truth but like I'm su- I'm surprised I'm surprised that you're uh, you are entirely entitled to your opinion Drew as regards the cinematography but I'm I'm perhaps surprised by it because I think this is objectively a um, a beautiful film if I and I think compositionally I, I I was blown away by it if I were going to take issue with anything it's a stylistic choice of the use of saturation and there's I'm intrigued to know what the the process during the the transfer and the um The gradient was in this film, because when I watched it, I assumed it had been shot on digital and it wasn't. It was shot on Kodak 35mm stock. Digital
1: intermediate, I think.
2: Yeah, Yeah. digital intermediate. And it's interesting because the choices made, the sort of the use of oversaturation... Was bordering on the objectional in places, but for some reason it won me over. There's also this thing going on where I assumed it had been shot digitally and also potentially some scenes had this slight whiff of HDR about them. But I'm going to assume that's not the case. It's as though quite a few of the scenes have been fairly subtly tone mapped or something instead. And the whole thing is so... This is going to sound potentially daft, but one of the things I noticed immediately about it is one of the sharpest sharpest movies that mm. I've ever seen. The definition, the detail mm-hmm. is absolutely incredible. And I'm again, I'm going to go and assume that at some point in the grading or the you know in the digital processing of the film stock that some form of sharpening might well have been applied again as a stylistic choice because it, I'm flabbergasted by it. I'd love to see it in the cinema. I'd love to see it in 4K just to, to see whether or not I can confirm my suspicions. But yeah, I mean, most of what I took away from this film was its visual flair. I found the pace of it, actually... Fil- films that are this slow burn can go one of two ways for me. And, and for me, The Assassin actually... Um, I feel like it almost lucked out rather than anything else, but I I found it was quite seductive in places. I found it was quite hypnotic actually. And I actually really liked some of these shots where people have some dialogue or there'll be a clash and then people will just suddenly stop and stand and stare at each other for what feels like about five minutes while the camera sort of, sometimes it's, sometimes it's entirely locked off. Other times it's perhaps swaying about slightly, very gradually. There's something really hypnotic about it. I'm not sure how those stylistic choices serve the story, which, from what I gathered, was the story of one of the least successful assassins in history. <laughs> yeah. Certainly the bottom half of the table, because in the course of the film, correct me if I'm wrong, our, <laughs> our lead lady kills one person and <laughs> every, <right>. resolutely <laughs> fails to do away with anyone else throughout the entire course of the film
1: and also I do think assassins are supposed to be sort of stealthy she just seems to walk up to people she's going to kill or then say higher and fail to kill them
2: I kind of like the part where she just walks up to them and just kind of like springs out of a bush or just suddenly just strolls into the room and stands there for a bit until someone realises she's there I kind of like the moxie of that but um, yeah the, it kind of goes a bit south when for reasons that aren't necessarily always clear at the time she just sort of stares at them and then turns around and just walks calmly <laughs> away it's not <laughs> it's not even that we're given this portrayal of inner turmoil that we can you know, that we can assess and and say, all right, okay, yeah, oh, she's obviously got some issue there. Just there's this very almost robotic sensibility about the way she goes about her actions, where she'll just stop, stare, turn around, walk away again. What? It's it's interesting Mm -hmm. stylistically, but I'm not entirely sure how all of these stylistic um, choices are actually serving the plot. But then again, as I point out, I can't tell you what... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I can't tell you what the plot is. As you say, Scott, having, having read plot summaries of it afterwards, having read synopses of it afterwards, I'm like, oh yeah, that, that does sound like I shouldn't have had much problem following it with or without subtitles. But there you go. It's an interesting film, and, and for me it, it exceeds um, stylistically. But yeah, it's by no means a wushu movie. There are perhaps two examples at most of what might be classed as sort of what you might perceive as traditionally as as being wushu and even then they're very brief. There's Almost no wire work or anything involved to the point where they might as well not have bothered for some of the scenes. <laughs> instead of having two characters standing in a roof, they could have just had them meet in the street outside instead, and it would have it would have saved the the stunt guys setting up a wire rig for like half a day or whatever for the sake of a 10 second scene. But yeah, an interesting beast. I'm gonna I'm gonna say it was the best of the movies I watched this month. But that's damning with faint praise stylistically i think a a success almost in spite of itself but yes i'm perhaps baffled as to how picked up best director at Cannes. enough so it's back over
1: to drew for a so then zootropolis as it is for some reason called here rather than the original name that it still carries in the united states of zootopia which as i said has puzzled me massively because zootopia being a pun would work Mm. here given it's an english language pun and also this is the country where um, the book utopia came from originally but um mm. it's just a strange one anyway it's it, led
2: to some confusing conversations between me and other people i've tried
1: to correct them and they're like no 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 <laughs> zootropolis don't you mean zootopia <laughs> zootropolis here for some reason or zootopia uh, which country you're listening in <laughs> is the latest from disney animation while i went into this film with no preconceptions had i come out of it disappointed or underwhelmed you know what i would have been entirely unsurprised fortunately though I thoroughly enjoyed this, and it's the first genuinely good Disney film, or Disney animation I've seen since Lilo and Stitch, which was 14 years ago. What? What? What, what? I, I'm immediately going to take issue with that, because...
2: Frozen and Tangled are both excellent films. No,
1: Frozen is incredibly, astonishingly mediocre, and Tangled is alright. You, sir, are wrong, but carry on. I am not wrong. Uh, Frozen is astonishingly mediocre, with the world's most insipid and bland song in it that people will not stop singing. Anyway... <laughs> we can fight afterwards <laughs>
2: everything is awesome is it, that one yeah yes, yeah that that's one. the one at least we agreed on Lilo and Stitch because I remember when they both came out we were baffled by the mediocre reviews it had had I, know, yeah. I, I remember we both watched it and absolutely loved it yeah
1: Lilo and Stitch it's one of the very few Disney films I really really like anyway let's go back to it so for now and we can fight down the slabbies later <laughs> <laughs> wushu style we'll just stare at each other and then turn round and walk away <laughs> and fail to kill <laughs> each other completely
2: that's it S- Scott can you hold the camera and just sway it gently from side to side.
1: <laughs> uh, Zootropolis is a tale of a young rabbit who aspires to be the first bunny police officer in the history of the great city of Zootropolis. Again, that old trope. Mm. Fighting prejudice, presumption, and outright antipathy, Officer Judy Hops. I mean, the character's naming is not the most original thing about this film, <laughs> I'll, I'll grant you. Officer Judy Hops. Can you imagine the thinking process there, right? <laughs> well, we've got a character called. but well, we kind of call her Bunny. What could we call her? Cottontail, tail, that's a bit obvious, isn't it? But what do rabbits do? Well, there's the obvious thing, we can't use Santa Job this film. <laughs> yeah. Hops, that'll Judy- do, let's call her Hops. Anyway, Officer Judy Hops must prove herself in the vast metropolis, which she's given the opportunity to do when she begins to investigate a missing person's case. With the help of a sidekick, coerced into helping her, a sidekick who just also happens to be a fox, a rabbit's most ancient enemy. In her investigation, Judy discovers that the missing animals are all predators who have turned savage information which threatens to tear the partnership and also the whole city apart. What follows is part journey of self-discovery, part buddy cop movie, part film noir detective story anthropomorphic animals are nothing original especially for Disney but Mism- mis- mismatched cop duo that's probably quite original for Disney actually original for the world but,
2: <laughs> but at any point does Judy sort of go I'm getting too old for this <laughs> and then in the background a saxophone just goes
1: Ne-ne-ne. no and or nor at any point is anybody say do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth oh no is Judy two days from retirement <laughs> ah she's two days from starting the job so no she's the other end of things um, uh. as I say that's it's nothing original there in terms of the genres here and anthropomorphic animals but the world of Zootropolis is it's a delight it's vivid and colorful exciting and full of detail the characters are well written and they are played well by the English language voiceover artist, at least, with Jennifer Goodwin as Jude. Idris Elba and Jason Bateman being standouts. Jason Bateman in particular seems to have really relished his role here. He, he plays it with a lot of gusto and a lot of fun, which helps the enjoyment factor of the film considerably. Now, Zootropos is undeniably preachy, hammering home the message of not judging people by their looks or colour or species etc. with a distressing lack of subtlety.
2: <laughs> Don't judge people <laughs> by their species! <laughs>
1: you remember these are <laughs> animals, quick, they humans! <laughs> Sorry, hammer home that message with a distressing lack of subtlety at some points, and also, I strenuously object to the non-carnivore propaganda present throughout. <coughs> does
2: does a fox live in a static caravan on a beach? <laughs> with a dog, yeah. At any point, does the <laughs> does the fox drunkenly unload anti-Semitic rhetoric <laughs> on a police officer? <laughs>
1: Tyrades of misogyny. I'd say, though, in finally shifting away from princesses and romances, Disney have given us a strong female character worthy of the term. And Most surprisingly, more successfully than Pixar have ever managed, with the arguable exception of Inside Out's joy. While it would have been nice if they'd laid off the constant Frozen references, which absolutely saturate the film, Disney are getting quite bad for in-jokes nowadays, actually. This is a charming, colourful and really very funny effort from the House of Mouse and is definitely a film worth making an effort to see.
2: Do any of the bad guys in this movie have diplomatic (laughs) immunity? Sort of. (laughs) <laughs> cool.
0: Score. <laughs> Great. So that's your lot. Uh, meager pickings as it was, I think. Nothing else sad, is there, boys? One out of six ain't bad. <laughs> it is. <laughs> kind of ways, it? oh yeah <laughs> it's, wait <laughs> yeah, it's a poor memory but uh, we'll be back very soon talking about the french new wave i'm assuming craig and i
1: don't kill each other instead when we fight over disney animations later <laughs> no comment so until next time if you wanted to pick any
0: fights with us you can do so on twitter that's at Fudson Film. you can do it on facebook facebook.com com slash on film. You can hit us up on email podcast at fudsonfilm.com Just yeah. shout at us for whatever reasons you like. Come and get us. If you really want to help out the podcast, you could leave us a, a review on iTunes. That would be much appreciated. But well, if not, and we understand you might not want to wrestle with iTunes more than is absolutely necessary, just simply either spread the word on social media or just come back in 10 days
2: <laughs> and let us listen to yeah. it. Again. Nob- nobody ever reviews podcasts on <laughs> iTunes, but damn it, we're going to okay. keep asking. Oh, so, until the first of the month, we'll be seeing you. i Scott Morris. So it's goodbye from me. Bye from Craigie's. Into the night I go. And also, Drew Tappendale. Here they are.